You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the lives of faithful Old Testament believers. We're calling By Faith. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. One of the things that seems to be uh, so prevalent in our world, I I don't know that it's more prevalent than it was in the past, but social media news, all the things that are out there certainly make it clear. And there's this epidemic going on in, in my profession, it might not surprise you, when something goes sideways with a moral failure, Uh, everybody seems to hear about it. And within that moral failure, what ends up happening, obviously, is it has an impact on everybody in church leadership, and it certainly is a reflection of Christ. But it's not that the problems are limited to church leadership. It just seems to get more uh, press when it happens in church leadership. When I came here in 1998, I was handed a copy of what's known as Leadership Journal. Leadership Journal was a publication. It's still available in digital print, but it was produced by Christianity Today, and it is a journal for people in uh, in vocational ministry. And so in 1998, when I got here, I was handed a copy of this Leadership Journal from 1996, so two years before I got here. And this particular issue, it comes out, it was printed four times a year, was titled Friendship and Accountability. So every article in, the, in this particular issue had to do with those topics. Randy Alcorn is, a, is an author. You may be familiar with some of his writings. But he wrote one of the pieces in it. And so within the one that he wrote, he included this list. And it's titled The Real and Untold Cost, and then subtitled The Exorbitant Price of Sexual Sin. Now, I recognize within this list, you can't read those. I'm going to share some of those, but I wanted you to see how long the list was. His idea was this, as you'll see with this first one, grieving the Lord who redeemed me. His idea was this, is that in that moment when temptation begins to hit, is that we can become with such a singular focus, the idea that I'm willing to pay any price to pursue whatever temptation I'm facing. His idea was this, is that in that moment, if my brain goes down that path, that I should have a list in front of me so that I'm just really aware of what the real price tag is. And so he started making his list, such as grieving the Lord who redeemed me. He added this one, dragging his, the Lord's sacred name, into the mud. One day, having to look Jesus, the righteous judge, in the face and give an account of my actions. See, it won't be hidden forever. One day, I'll stand before the Lord and have to give an account. He added this one, inflicting untold hurt on Nancy, my best friend and my loyal wife. Wouldn't just be her. It would be hurting my beloved daughters, Karina and Angie. And I read this one, creating a form of guilt, awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I forgive myself? Bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God, and all that is good. Imagine that sense of saying that something that I'm doing is bringing joy or pleasure to the enemy of my soul. Now, why I start with this is the reality that one of the things that we've got to think through in this life is when temptation comes our way, is that we can find ourselves blinded to the real cost of whatever sin is bringing us into. 
So we look around the world, it's all over the place today. It's in our homes, it's in our church, it's everywhere. But there's a story for us to consider today. So as we come into this passage today, and I invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11, we've got two lessons left in this chapter. One is today and one, the last one will be next week. We're going to talk about the story of somebody named Samson. You might be familiar with his story, at least some of his story. Maybe we will frame it. Hopefully, you're going to find a redemptive thread in our message today. But Samson was a, was a person who had uh, a, a real story, and his life was not always easy, and there were temptations that were there. And so we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It's the same verse we were in last week because we get to the end of this section and the author of Hebrews just says, you know what, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me. There's so many narratives, I could tell you, so many men and women of faith who had to learn to take God at his word, that he would do what he said he's gonna do, that you can look back on his track record and be assured that he can do what he says he's gonna do, and that that will give us a hope and a conviction moving forward. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. That was last week, Barak. And today we're going to look at Samson. Now, before we get into his narrative, I wanna call attention to the fact of who he was. Like Gideon was a judge, Samson was a judge. He was the last of their major judges, and he was a military hero. He was viewed as this legendary status. So let's get into his story. If you would, turn with me back to Judges chapter 13. If you need to go to your table of contents to find it, feel free to jump into your table of contents. As we start this, recognizing there's going to be a little overlap from where we were last week. I mentioned last week that we would talk about some of these issues more because our text brings us back to the same place. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So let's go back. Now, we started that idea last week. We started talking about some of that stuff. Samson's gonna be different. We're gonna read in a minute about him being this Nazarite. And you may say, I've heard that word before. I don't really understand what a Nazarite is, but it's something really significant. So let's talk about that for a second. Then we're gonna jump into this. First off, a Nazarite was somebody that was especially devoted to God. The term itself comes from a Hebrew word. It means you are separated towards something, you're devoted to something, you're consecrated to something. And it could happen in a couple of different ways. You could enter into that for yourself for a season of life. Hey, I'm starting a new career. I'm moving to a new place. I'm going to dedicate myself for this season to being really set apart to the Lord for his purposes. The other way it could happen would be this your family could do it for you before you were even born, okay? Now think with me. You could have parents that say, I want to do this for my child before the child's even born, if the situation revolving around the pregnancy was particularly unique. How would you recognize this Nazarite? Well, they would have longer hair, they would abstain from all alcohol, and they would avoid all contact with the dead. And so there were several things, but all of those things pointed to the fact that you had this strong allegiance to the Lord. 
So you look around and you look in this story and you say, okay, so the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. That sounds a lot like Gideon. Now, last week it was that they were under oppression of the Midianites for seven years. This one's different. This is into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So we talked about the reality of the sin cycle is that sin gives way to slavery, sometimes literal, sometimes metaphorical in our worlds. It leads us to cry out. If you know the Lord, you cry out to the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you'll still cry out, but you're crying out to something that cannot bring deliverance. Cry out to the Lord, he brings deliverance, and then you have silence. Why? Because it stands in opposition to crying out. It's all of a sudden, you get delivered, and now the crying out stops, and now we're in a time of peace and silence, and there's rest. So we find ourselves in a position when we come into this and we see, okay, here they are again. And we talked about where Paul writes about this law of sowing and reaping. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We reap in accordance with what we sow. If you sow seeds for an apple tree, you will not reap an orange tree. If you sow righteousness, you will reap righteousness. But if you sow evil, you're going to reap the consequences of it. And so when we look at this and we say, okay, so they did evil in the sight of the Lord again, and you've heard us say it several times, the Lord is patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to salvation. He's patient. And you and I could look around and say, but is he really patient? I mean, really, is he patient? Well, let me just show you. Because when we talked about this, we looked at Judges 2, 3, 3, 4, and 6, 1 last week. It goes on, says the same phrase in Judges 10, Judges 13. Anywhere else? Well, yeah, how about 1 Samuel 12? How about 1 Samuel 15? Lance, anywhere else? Well, how about 2 Samuel 12? Anywhere else? Well, how about 1 Kings 11, 14, 15, 15, 16, 16, 16, and 22? Getting the picture? Is that enough? How about this? 2 Kings 3, 8, 8, 13, 13, 14, 15, 15, 15, 15, 17, 21, 21, 21, 21, 23, 23, 24, 24. Is that enough? How about this? 2 Chronicles 21, 22, 29, 33, 33, 33, 36, 35, uh, 36, 36, I may mess that up. You get it. <laughs> Anywhere else? Yeah. How about Jeremiah 52? When we talk about the Lord being patient, make no mistakes. He is incredibly patient because we have like a car with a bad front end alignment. We just keep moving away that we find ourselves in sin and we find ourselves going into slavery and we cry out, and when we know the Lord, he brings us into deliverance and the cries are gone. All is well. The urgency is gone. We're at peace. We're at rest. And we just don't last very long there. Like a car with a bad front end alignment, we end up in the ditch all over again into sin, bringing us back into another circle of slavery. And so over all of those examples, here we go, over and over and over again. So yeah, it was with Gideon. Yeah, we're back there again. So look back down, if you would, Judges 13. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There's the cry. They're crying out. Is there gonna be a deliverance? Verse two. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites 
whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink or eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. If you're this husband and wife, you've gone through the pain that they know of not being able to get pregnant. They've struggled through infertility. They've struggled in the oppression of the Philistines. They know the pain of this world. Life has not been easy for them. They cry out to the Lord, and you know what? The Lord hears their cry. And there begins the deliverance in that moment. Hey, I'm about to do a new thing. This is going to be an exceptional birth. It defies the odds. It defies the logic and the biology of where you've been. But know this, I hear your cry and I'm going to bring deliverance. And you are going to be the one that your child starts it. And he's going to be set apart for my purposes. He's going to be set apart for my purposes. So even now in the womb, I do not want you to have anything unclean. I do not want you to have any alcohol because his Nazarite vow starts in the womb. For all of my purposes, that's what we're going to do. Can you imagine the joy of this husband and wife? If you look down at verse uh, 24, we read this. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Oh, change is afoot. Things are going to get better. Things are going to really take root. You have this mother and this father. They've had this incredible moment. They love the Lord. They've cried out to the Lord. They've sought the Lord. The Lord has answered and said, I'm going to give you the gift of a child. And there was an important word that was read, and he will begin the deliverance. He's going to begin it. There's going to be something new that starts. And so Samson is born into this couple their home. They know the Lord. They walk with the Lord. They've sought the Lord. And the boy is growing up, and the Lord's at work, and they can feel it. They know it's coming. I got to tell you, if you've ever been a parent to a child, sometimes children have to learn the hard ways, right? They don't always comply with everything we would ask of them. We show this verse A couple of times in this series, for all this in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, the desires of the flesh, that what my uh, my body craves, I will give, the desire of the eyes, what I see that is shiny, that I want, I will want, pride of life. I want to feel strong. I want to feel powerful. Those things are not from the Lord. They're all that this world has to offer. And if you thought, I wonder what that looks like. Well, we're going to look at all three of those things as they pertain to the life of Samson, okay? So here we go. He starts growing up. Look down with me, if you would, at Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife, okay? Okay? Let's begin with this idea. Deuteronomy 7, it made it really clear 
that you shall not, Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn you away from your sons from following me to serve other gods and the anger of the Lord to be kindled against you. Because God in his relationship with Israel made it really clear is I'm your God, you're my people. And Israel was the only monotheistic nation out there, one God. They were the only one that had one God. See, other nations could not even conceive of a God so big that one God could do everything. Think about what you know about Roman gods and Greek gods. They create a whole system of gods because they can't even fathom one God big enough to do it all. And so when God says to Israel, hey, you don't intermarry. Here's why. Because if you think you're going to draw people in and that's going to be your evangelism method, it's not going to work. What's going to end up happening, you're going to date somebody from a polytheistic, mini-God world, and they're going to draw you into their polytheism. So I don't want you to intermarry with anybody else. Well, now, we can look up and say, what does he know and what does he not know? Well, we don't really know yet, but catch Samson's parents' answer, verse 3. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all people that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, they know the law, and they look around like, and they soft-shoe it, right? They look around at Samson like, ah. And there's somebody, I mean, let's look again, Samson. Let's think about people in our people group, people that follow Yahweh. Is there not one of these? And then they add to it a little bit. Why would you want to go after one of these uncircumcised fellows? I mean, it was a slap in the face of Colin Matt. So he looks around and they go, okay, Samson, mom and dad say to you, hey, let's marry one of ours, somebody that's monotheistic like us that worship our God. And why would you want to go with one of these dirty Philistines? Well, look down with me, if you would, at uh, verse 3. Is there not a woman among the daughters that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. She's right in my eyes. Problem is, when we have eyes that don't match the Lord's eyes, we're in trouble. Because all those passages we just read about they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they did evil in the Lord's eyes, and Samson right now has just said, but it's right in my eyes. And the moment you and I start deciding that what's in my eyes is accurate and God is off in his eyes, Either we're choosing evil for the sake of evil, or we think he's wrong. One of the two. Paul makes it clear, we walk by faith, not by sight. And he's walking by sight, and it's about to get him in a world of trouble. Because all of a sudden, he wants to look around and says, you know what? This is what I want. I don't care what God says. And probably if we're really honest, most of us in this room have at some point said, I know God wants me to do this. I just don't feel like it today. I'm going to go my own way. Now, verse 4 gives us a little note here. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. What's that saying? I think it's saying this. Is the Lord going to use Samson's choice of evil for God's good purposes? Because God's not handcuffed 
to Samson making a good choice here. God is still sovereign. And he's going to be able to use it, and it's going to come into play later. But all of a sudden, we're moving in this direction. So the story continues. So look with me, if you would, down at verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards at Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces. Now, think with me. You got Samson, who was raised in this Nazarite vow. He's being pushed towards this life of faith. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what your life's going to be about. Then he has a chance to say, it's right in my eyes, but he still has got it working in God's still in the picture. He's around the picture. He's intervening in the pictures. This lion comes up and he is able to kill the lion with his hands. Now that's pretty remarkable. But remember the Nazarite vow? Is this faith that is so significant to his parents, we don't yet see it being significant to Samson, but it's significant to mom and dad. And so if you look back down at the passage at verse 8, after some days, he returns to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion that he killed. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey, and he scraped it out with his hands, violation of Nazarite vow. He was around a dead carcass and carving out of that carcass. He was eating it, the honey as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave them some, and they ate. They have no idea. Matter of fact, it goes on to say, but he didn't tell them. We now have a secret life. Catch that? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what's right in my eyes. I recognize some people around me may not approve, but I, they don't have to know all the details. So I can live my life the way I want to live over here. I will bring in the benefits of it when it's, when it's ad, uh, to my advantage to do that. And I'm just going to live my life. Okay, well, Samson, we, we really would like to see more faith than that. We'd like to see more that's going on. His story continues. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. His father-in-law said, no. Verse 2, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Now, I got to tell you, We've already seen Samson fall into the desires of the flesh. I'm hungry. I want the honey. I don't care if I violate my vow. My body wants the honey. I will take the honey. Now we have a pride of life issue. He shows up to go be with his wife, and his father-in-law says, now I get why he's upset, right? Hey, your wife, my daughter, I didn't think you liked her, so I gave her to your buddy. But not to worry. She has a little sister who you can have her, she's even prettier than your wife. Now, I get why he's upset, but pride of life, I just got humiliated, I just got shamed, I'm embarrassed that somebody, my wife is now with somebody else, what do I do with that? Well, I don't know what you do with it, let me tell you what Samson does with it. Look at verse four. So he went and caught 300 foxes and took torches he turned them tail to tail. He put a torch between each pair of tails. And then when he set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the grain, and they killed all the grain, the stacked grain, the standing grain, and the olive orchards. See, pride of life will well up in you. 
get angry, ever get enraged, ever think, I just want to destroy everything? Yes, the people who are oppressing us, the Philistines, let me destroy all of their crops because one man did something to me and I feel humiliated. So let me grab 300 foxes, 150 pairs, tie their tails together, put a lit torch on between their tails and let them run and catch everything on fire. Because pride of life doesn't think consequences. Pride of life doesn't think, how do I process this? What's a healthy way to do it? No, they go wheels off and everybody pays. You follow the story, Philistines are mad. They show up, they kill his wife, they kill his father-in-law. Things are going sideways. But when pride of life takes over, that's what's gonna happen. And so all of a sudden, he begins to go and he begins to flee. And so as he flees, if you look down at verse 10, and the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? As he begins to flee, he runs back and these Judeans find him and they look at him like, what are you doing here? You're gonna bring the Philistines here and they're mad, they're upset. Why would you do this to us, Samson? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. The 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is it that you've done to us? Pride of life. You see what he says? As they did to me, so I've done to them. They got what they got coming. That's their fault, not even my fault. And they said, well, we've got to, we've come down to bind you. We got to hand you over to the Philistines because they're going to make us pay for your sin. Pride of life doesn't care about that stuff. So he says, or swear to me, you're not going to kill me. We're not going to kill you. We're just going to hand you over to the Philistines. So they bind him up. They hand him over to the Philistines. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. There's that phrase again. And the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that had caught fire and his bounds melted off with his hand. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put it in his hand. He took it and he struck a thousand men. See, pride of life doesn't consider consequences. He's wheels off. He's destroyed all their agriculture. He's lost his wife. He's lost his father-in-law. Now he's he found himself running. The Judeans have to say, we have to turn you over. Otherwise, they're going to kill us. So now, all of a sudden, he kills a thousand more people. And we just keep going and going and going. Chapter 16, verse 1. Here we have both his pride and the desires of his eyes creating a problem. Chapter 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in with her. And the Gazites said, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. Can you imagine? They know exactly where he is. And they're like, oh, he's ours. We got him. We're just going to wait till the morning when he comes down, and then he's ours, and this will be over. I got to believe, I don't think Samson probably looked that physically intimidating because they just like, okay, we got him. He's ours. We got him. So they're going to show up and they're just going to wait. He's going to come out and like, he's ours. This is over. Until it isn't, because the idea was we're going to wait all night and then the morning we'll get him. Verse three, Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he thinks, 
I'll arise. He took holds of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill. See, we've got a guy who's really weak on morals and really strong in physical feats of strength. The plan was, we'll get him in the morning. And he's a guy that seems to always land on his feet, right? Like the consequences never catch him. He's able to get out, has this incredible feat of strength, pulls up the gate and pulls that stuff out and carries it off with him. And I can imagine the people are like, wait a minute, what just happened? What a moment. All of this is going on. And then we have another moment. It may be the story that you're familiar with. Look at verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. I don't think they care about Delilah at all. Delilah's a pawn. It's not that the Philistines care about her. Matter of fact, the only difference between this and the previous woman that Samson uh, was with was Samson had to pay for that woman. This woman he doesn't have to pay for. All of the Philistine lords are paying for. And the price is exorbitant. 1,100 shekels per lord. It's all yours. Here's what we want you to do. We need you to seduce him. Now, tell me how known Samson's sins are that they know the way to get Samson. Because sometimes there's a game plan for where we are vulnerable to temptation. His game plan is now known. And all of a sudden, hey, we got a goal for you. We need you to bring Samson in, and here's what we need. What is the source of his strength? Whatever the source is, we need you to find it, and we need you to tell it. And we so want this, we will pay you exorbitantly for that information. So, Sam, so Delilah brings him in, and three times she says, hey, what's the secret? Three times he lies. Three times not knowing it was a lie, she does exactly what he said would take away his strength, only to wake him up and say, hey, they're upon you. And all three times, he just breaks free. Three times, three questions, three lies, three failed attempts. See, why I say pride of life, oh, it's never gonna catch up with me. I mean, I'm, I'm good, I get away with that. I'm really skilled at getting away with what I wanna get away with. I'm strong. Besides, I like being here with you. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, all three of them at play in this. And then we have a moment where it kind of changes a little bit. Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You mocked me. It's funny, when she, was, she just thought it was saying, you mock me, you mock me, you mock me. Samson didn't care. You know where it changed? When she says, I thought you loved me. And now it's a test of his affections for her. And he says, okay, here's the story. I'm a Nazarite. If you cut my hair, that's where my source of strength resides. And all of a sudden, cut his hair. They have this moment. 
Look down with me if you would. Verse 16, when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, urged him, his soul was vexed. He said, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Up until now, we could have made the argument that he may not have known he was a Nazarite. He could have believed he was just going through the motions. This is the first sign that we know that he knows that he is to live his life dedicated unto the Lord. Matter of fact, it's been that way my whole life since the womb. If my head shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And all of a sudden, Delilah says, we got the truth. We got the truth. So they shave his head. Look down with me, verse 20. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as with the other time and shake myself free. I'm strong. I control my own destiny. I've been here before. I always land on my feet. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. There comes that moment in sin where God backs away and says, you want the cake? I'm going to let you eat the cake. It's not what you want but you not, you're not learning. You're not learning. I've spared you from so many consequences of your sin, and it's not drawing you to me. It's only emboldening you in your sin. It's leading you further down a path of foolishness. You've trained the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the pride of life. You've trained it. And where we are now is you're gonna suffer the consequences And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with brawn shackles. It strikes me, if you know where Jesus goes in the Sermon on the Mount, which is our next series when we wrap this one up, there's a moment where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, remove it. And here we have an interesting situation where so much of Samson's life was desires of the eyes and the Philistines remove his eyes. And off he goes as a prisoner, shackled, blinded, pride of life, gone. Desires of the eyes won't be an issue anymore. So he finds himself in a really, really tough place. But he didn't know the Lord had left him. So he's working, he's... Um, and he grounded the mill in prison. Yeah, so there he is. Now he's just a common prisoner in the midst of the whole situation. And you and I could look around and say, this is pretty bleak, and it is pretty bleak. Let's not miss that. But there's this incredible sentence, verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again. Now, to be fair, the hair was never the source of his strength. It was a symbol the fact that he was devoted unto the Lord. And all of a sudden, guess what? That hair starts to grow back. This may not be the end of the story. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. But did he? No. Dagon didn't do this. This had no bearing on Dagon at all. This is Samson and his problems with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And God has said, you're going to suffer consequences now. Dagon didn't do anything, but they give him credit. Verse 24, when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country has killed many of us. 
when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. You want to talk about a strange situation. They're, they've had too much to drink. They're in the biggest party of their life. And they look around and said, you know what would be fun? That Samson guy. Let's humiliate him, pride of life. Let's humiliate him. Bring him out and have him dance and entertain us. And all of a sudden they bring him out. He can't see them. He can hear them. What do you think this party sounds like as they all mock him and ridicule him? They made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars by which the house rests that I may lean against. Let me just put my hands up. Let me just get some bearings on me. And he puts his hands up against those pillars. Verse 27, now the house is full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. All of the ruling class of the Philistines are present in this moment. And on the roof, there were 3,000 men and women who looked on while he entertained. It's quite a scene. Humiliated, shamed. I wonder what's going through his mind. Now, to be fair, Samson is no different than everybody else in their culture. There was no king in Israel. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. The story started with Samson going after that wife. That's what he said. I matter. What's in my eyes matter. They were all doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Joshua had told us, hey, this book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. We talked last week about muttering it. So you'll be careful to do all that's written in it so you can be prosperous and have good success. And I wonder if somewhere as he is standing there with his hands on the, on the pillars, he doesn't look around and say, how did I end up here? I know my God's a good God. I know who he is. His word's a light under our path. He's always been faithful. That Red Sea thing, that was amazing. How did I end up here? Well, here's how you end up here. You fall into sin, doesn't matter. Desires of the eyes, desires of the flesh, pride of life, it doesn't matter. Any of them will lead you into slavery, which leads us into crying out, which will bring deliverance when we cry out to the Lord. And so we find ourselves in a position where we look down and say, why is Samson in Hebrews 11 anyway? I mean, that's a pretty rotten story, right? Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord. Catch that? Sin, slavery, cry out, but you've got to cry out to the one who can save. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle, middle pillars. You know, he couldn't have found them had he not asked for the person to put his hands on him, on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, and I wonder how loud this was, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were, who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Remember what, he, what the Lord told his parents? He's going to begin breaking the oppression of the Philistines. Lesson, I mean, war, battle number one fought right there. Battle one fought right there. 
Why is he in Hebrews 11? Well, I guess I would encourage us to maybe think about it this way. A life spent pursuing eyes of the, uh, desires of the eyes, desires of the flesh, and the pride of life that's gutsy enough at the end of life, having felt all the consequences, having been enslaved to whatever impulse or temptation was driving the train, is that you would still have a bold enough faith to call out to the Lord in that moment and say, Lord, save me for your glory. Man, that is a bold faith because we get to the end and the fact is, I think that we see Samson restored and reconciled to the Lord because his faith is celebrated in Hebrews chapter 11. How else would you reconcile it? There is never a part of our sin that is too far from drawing us back to the Lord. You never get too far. His grace is that strong. Where does strength come from? Well, Scripture told us over and over again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him in 6. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's where his strength always came from. That's where our strength comes from. And that's where we, we trust his goodness. And so I guess I would ask you to consider, we talked about Randy Alcorn's list, the exorbitant price of falling into sin. Sometimes not falling, sometimes it's running into sin. If you were to make a list, what would be on your list? What's the exorbitant price? Because isn't that just what the enemy does when desires of the eyes, desires of the flesh, and the pride of life pop up is we think this is better than anything else in the world and we forget the price tag of everything else? What would be on your list? What's the price of falling into one of those three things for you? Maybe that's worth considering. Maybe that's worth making your own list. God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. When, he, when we cry out to him, he longs to step in and intervene to bring deliverance, that there may be silence. No more crying out. We're at peace. We're at rest. We're at joy with him. But if you're here this morning and you don't know him, he longs to have that relationship with you, that he could deliver you from whatever slavery you feel enslaved to. He made it all possible through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, did not sin, went to a cross to pay a penalty that wasn't his to pay, it was ours. Then he walked out of the grave on day three, offering you and me life. He longs to deliver you. As we wrap up this morning, just a couple of thoughts. When you don't see things the way God does, abandon your perception and choose what's right in the eyes of the Lord. We choose what's evil in the sight of the Lord so often. Let's just call it what it is. Let's just call it evil. It's either evil or it's what the Lord would have for us. And so if the Lord says this is right, and your perception is that it isn't, abandon your perception. Go with the Lord and what he says is right. You will never regret that. Number two, when you find yourself arrogantly playing with sin, confess immediately, step back and get back to safety. There are so many times Samson could have stepped back. I mean, come on, three times he lied to Delilah and she keeps trying to trap him with what he said. That guy is playing with sin over and over and over again. Step back. Dr. Michael Spiegel is uh, a professor at Dallas Seminary, and on his Twitter account, he does a lot of stuff that begins with Theology 101, so I thought I'd share one of those with you. If you feed the wild beast of temptation with a morsel of harmless sin, it will first befriend you, then it will bite you, then it will devour you. Harmless is in quotes, because there's no such thing as harmless sin. You start playing with harmless sin, it will befriend you, 
It will bite you and it will devour you. Samson learned that the hard way. And then thirdly, when facing the consequences of your sin, know this, that restoration and redemption are only a cry out to the Lord away. In that moment, Samson, all that he'd been through in his life, all of those things, all of those stories we looked at, with a hand on each post, shackled by the, the sin, the shame, all that he'd been through, blind, only being able to hear, says, Lord, just one, one time, show up for me. And he does. That's the goodness of our God. There's always redemption. There's always restoration. You are never too far away. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.